Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 163. We are back recording on, what is this, January 14th of 2022, uh, the Photo Geekery Show, where I'm your host, Don Kamarechka, now coming to you from the coast of the Black Sea, uh, just outside of Varna, Bulgaria. The move has been a success, and we will talk about that uh, and that wonderful transition at the top of this episode. But to join me for this uh, weekly, and, and I hope it continues on weekly, uh, gathering of uh, photo news with a geeky twist to it and uh, and two minds to discuss the happenings of the week, I have with me my very good friend, Steve Brazel. Steve, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. It's wonderful to see you, Don. How are you? I'm great. Uh, I, I think that this this transition uh, to, to to being here is not not only uh, healthy and wholesome and everything else. It's going to give me a lot of free time to focus creative energies where they are due, and um, and we're still in the setup process. If my audio is a, a little bit echoey, it's because the room that I'm in doesn't have a whole lot in it yet. Uh, and uh, so all of my various and sundry photo gear equipment that muffles the sound in a room just by its clutter, only a portion of it is uh, is here with me at the moment. So um, yeah, I, I fully expect this to be an interesting endeavor uh, in the coming weeks and months as I get fully set up. And, and you'll see that uh, and, and you'll hear that on this podcast. Well, I have to say a couple of things. A few things I got to touch on really quick because I just noticed it. So first of all, uh, congratulations on finally going back to Photo Geek Weekly after the move. I'm glad that you're getting settled in. We've done a, a couple of our critique shows so far since your move. And actually, the echo compared to the first critique show and how you sound now is much, much better. But you're representing right behind you on the wall. This is an audio podcast, so folks, you can't see this. But right behind him on the wall, the Canadian flag. I'm glad you think it's the Canadian flag, Steve, but it is not the Canadian flag. That is my maple leaf flag, my uh, rendition, my homage to the Canadian flag. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in a strange uh, twist, that image um, is one of the reasons why we were able to kind of make this move. Um and I mean this in in a in a weird way. It's because people steal it. Um, it's because it is my most infringed image, and I protect my rights. And pursuing copyright infringement uh, has been enough passive income to kind of uproot ourselves and, and move over, knowing that there would be a period of time for which you know I'm, I might not be making a whole lot because you got to. Set yourself down, get yourself uh, reconfigured in a new land. Um, but that passive income from copyright infringement is still continuing. And so that that's a wonderful safety net to have to be able to do this. Well, welcome to your new home. And uh, from myself and everybody who is a fan of this show, really glad you're doing it again. Well, uh, th thank you. And, and I've had a lot of people bugging me uh, about uh, continuing this uh, this podcast. When are the new episodes coming out, uh, going through withdrawal and what have you. So, hey, everybody, here's your fix. Uh, we've got some great stories lined up, four of them that I think are going to be a wonderful discussion. And I was thinking of going back over the past couple of months and, and digging through some of the really juicy stories. But then we would have a 10-hour episode. And I just don't think that that's necessarily good for everybody. So I just picked stuff from the, the most recent past and, uh, and, and we'll go from there. Uh, but you know that 
speaking of, of this transition, uh, I, I've encountered a couple of things that I didn't really expect. One of them is here in Eastern Europe, they have Pepsi Twist, which existed oh. in North America in my high school days, in like the early yeah. 2000s for like 18 months or so. It is delicious, and it's bringing me back to uh, that nostalgia of those. Well, th- those weren't great days. I was the kid being shoved in the lockers, but I always liked Pepsi Twist. Uh, and so I've got that again. And, uh, you know, uh, strange little bits of culture shock here and there. Um, one thing that I noticed is that um, they only sell ventless dryers. Um, in, uh, in Canada, uh, you have a dryer. It's got a big hole in the wall that vents to the outside. That doesn't exist here. And in fact, in some European countries, they're even banned. Um, the better and technology. And I have to say, in North America, it's the same. And when I bought this house that was built in 1960, the washer and dryer were in the garage and there was no way to get it near an opening and there was no vent. So I had to literally vent it into a five-gallon bucket of water until finally I cut a hole in the roof and put a vent out the roof. I love the idea of a ventless dryer. I would buy a ventless dryer. It's, it's amazing uh, how I only thought it could be done one way. Right, like there was only one way to do it. I had the blinders on, and then I get here. It's like, well, there's no hole in the wall. How how did the, their dryer work here previously? Because they took their appliances, and then I go to the appliance store. They don't sell them with vents. Like, okay, this is this is going from bad to worse. I don't know what this stuff is. Well, it's got a condenser that just puts all the moisture into a little tub that you empty in the sink, um, and so it's basically a dehumidifier built into that. And right. it was just a, a fun moment for me. Because I realized in that moment that the way I knew things to be, the only way I knew that that could possibly be was uh, possibly wrong. And, uh, and from that point of view, I just thought, okay, well, um, now uh, mind is open to new possibilities and the culture shock gets a little bit lessened as a result. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I'm coming to you, Stephen. And, and uh, for uh, for those listening to this, they're not seeing that my video keeps cutting out for Steve, who's probably quite confused. And I don't know if it's a connection issue. Um, I find it fascinating. I'm sorry. There, I, I, I keep hitting the button to turn it back on and then it kicks off in, in just, a, uh, you know, like 10 seconds later. Uh, but I'm coming on a, a, a 4G connection uh, through the airwaves uh, to, to Steve and, and through this recording because we don't have any wired internet connections in this area. And I've done a whole uh, weird network of things to shotgun two uh, 4G modems together uh, for increased bandwidth, because of course I would. And um, and it, it seems to be working pretty well for the most part. Um, but uh, you be the judge when you listen back to this and any feedback would be appreciated. Um, okay, Steve, let's get into our stories. Um, I'm assuming you've had a chance to to dig through them as you usually do. You make copious notes when you have the time to do so. And story yes, number and before one. Before you introduce story number one, I just have to say, when I saw the link, in my head, there was a little part of, yes, finally, we're going to discuss this. And another part of me that was, oh, God, no. So this will be fun. <laughs> So, uh, I mean, we've briefly touched on this podcast on NFTs in the past, non-fungible tokens, and sort of what that meant for photography uh, at its infancy. And now it's starting to, to, to grow some teeth and cry with a louder cry, and it's begging our attention a little bit more, especially now, uh, reported by DP Review, that the Associated Press is to launch 
NFT photography marketplace on January 31st. So let's let's unpack, first of all, NFTs, what they generally mean to photographers, why I am personally not that interested at all in them, and why I think um, that this devalues um, the Associated Press and any legitimate organization um, that is trying to be pro-journalism and uh, and just kind of traditional media, they don't really need to jump on the bandwagon. So I, I guess I'm kind of, uh, I, I don't want to bury the lead because I, 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 I know that's what we're going to get to. But NFTs, basically it's encoding your image, your artwork in a blockchain of which there are many. Uh, Most commonly for photographers, Ethereum is the one typically being used right now. Uh, And typically via a platform like OpenSea, for example, uh, where that is the the host of the content, uh, where it can be bought and sold or auctioned uh, as such. And so there is a very large- Let's stop there for a second though and clarify, because those two parts are critical, right? Yeah. The way I like to think of them is in database design and computer, whatever, one of them is the back end, one of them is the front end. So OpenSea for most people is that front end. It is that user interface where the buying and selling happens. For lack of a better phrase, let's call it the gallery. Problem is it's a platform. It's a platform. And and I want to get into that in a minute because – when you have a, at least in the current model of things, that's not to say that you can't completely encode digital information, an entire image in the blockchain. You can. That would take an exorbitantly huge amount of data in order to do that. Uh, so what happens currently is that uh, you encode a token, uh, you know, a, 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 a non-fungible ba- token. A non-fungible token, sure, but this token uh, is a reference, a pointer on a separate platform, and that pointer points towards your artwork on this front end, this gallery, as uh, Steve is is suggesting. And what happens if that gallery disappears? What happens if that platform goes under? Well, all of your precious NFTs are now linked to a platform, regardless of if they are embedded in a blockchain and you happen to own that particular portion of a blockchain. Uh, it is a but very the key is, well, you just said network. something, though, that's so key. I mean, we're going down a rabbit hole here of, of, of tech, how it works, but, but that's the key. You're not buying the JPEG, the, the GIF, whatever. You're buying the pointer. Really what you own, what's in the blockchain, what's in your wallet is the pointer. And if you decide to sell that particular uh, chunk of data that has that pointer, then somebody else now owns that pointer that points to that front end and so on. The thing is that I am reminded of, I think this was in the early 90s when you could, uh, you could buy a plot of land on the moon or Mars, or whatever. Uh, And uh, there were companies out there that maintained a database 
And yeah, you know, according to their database, uh, you owned this particular, you know, 10 square meter chunk of the moon. And you could give that to somebody as a gift at Christmas. I think one of my relatives received one from another one of my relatives when I was young. And, and I thought, oh, wow, you can move to the moon now, grandma. Uh, and I, I, I thought, okay, that was pretty cool. But that, that actually doesn't mean anything. If one third-party, non-government or non-international respected entity decides to tell you that you own this plot of land on the moon uh, and it's not recognized by any authority whatsoever, then what do you actually have? And this was a bit of a scam and a lot of companies decided to jump on that bandwagon realizing that they could sell thin air to people. Uh, and then they all dissolved and became bankrupt. And now that plot of land on the moon is no longer yours because it I'm, never was. I'm going to make another analogy because, excuse me, this just happened to me. I needed spray paint to p paint my gate. So I go looking for Rust-Oleum spray paint. And I go to Home Depot and the paint that I want, they're all out of. And I said to her, is it possible you have some in the boxes up above? And she went and she looked on the computer and she came back and said, well, it shows that we have seven. But I don't know where they are. <laughs> and effectively, Just and she it's goes, in the it's database. probably not in a box because the boxes have eight. So if it was in a brand new box, there would be eight. And it shows we have seven. They should be on the, the shelf somewhere. But I don't know where they are, and that effectively is the thing. She had seven pointers <laughs> to nothing that physically existed in front of me anymore, and I couldn't buy it. Even if I had the pointer and I already owned it, I couldn't go grab one. So I, I have to say something before we go on. <clears throat> something happened to me on Twitter where I tweeted, I'm so close to blocking crypto and NFT, the words, the terms crypto and NFT. Me too. And if, if I didn't like genuinely uh, have affection for certain people that I follow that are friends of mine that right. have gone down this rabbit hole of NFTs, I would have blocked those phrases already. But here's what happened. So I, oh, that's all I did. I tweeted to my followers, right? Thinking in my head. I'm tweeting to my followers, people who know me. And it was some, you know, kind of cryptic trying to, Steve trying to be humorous, uh, probably failing like Steve usually would be, you know, I'm so close to blocking NFT and, and crypto or whatever it was that I said. I don't remember the tweet exactly. And somebody that doesn't follow me that I have no idea who it is answered and said, yeah, you go ahead and do that. And we'll all be laughing when your feed is empty in a couple of years because NFTs are the future of photography. How can you even say this? How can you even call yourself a photographer? You're an actual photographer. How can you believe this? You know, that type of thing. I mean, literally it was, yeah. you know, how dare you as uh, a I've, photographer I've seen these types of NFTs. comments. Very vitriolic. And so before anybody says that to me right now, <laughs> And tweets that to me, just don't, okay? Because I'm not going to read it. It's not going to matter. I'm not going to change my mind. Uh, if, hey, if it works for you, great. I know people making a lot of money at NFTs. Um, a guy that used to be on a, another show that I used to do with my buddy Adam Elmacias, Nate Hill has sold a ton of them. Trey Ratcliffe is doing them. Look, I'm not saying NFTs are not a business opportunity. NFTs are definitely a business opportunity. People are making money. What my problem is, is that I don't believe it is a, a stable business opportunity. 
I think B, it's somewhat pyramidistic. That's not even a word, but pyramidistic. Um, and I would encourage you to go watch, and I sent the link to Don. The week that we're recording this, the previous Sunday, was uh, This Week in Tech, uh, Twit, on the Twit Network. It's it's the main show on the Twit Network with Leo Laporte. And this one had two guests, uh, Father Robert Balliser, a Jesuit from the Vatican. And Great guy. And tech- Amy Webb uh, and was Amy also Webb. on. Their conversation starts at, I think it was 24 minutes and 47 seconds or something like that at the show. And they they talk about a lot of other things. Go listen to that conversation. Just do that for me. Well, and and if you're sending people away, Steve, I I would also like to, um, uh, there was a video that I remembered watching a few years back. Uh, True TV has this series. I don't know if it's still running, um, but, but it's called Adam Ruins Everything. And yes. it's a wonderful comedy, uh, you know, but but factual uh, kind of routine about things that you know he, the, the guy just bursts bubbles, and I and I love it. Uh, everything from the healthcare system in the United States, um, which was a great one, to one on artwork and galleries and, and the whole fine art pricing scheme, and how it's really designed to make wealthy people more wealthy. Uh, and there's lots of tricks within that space that, you know, prestigious artwork is not really respected for its, uh, its intrinsic value as art, but for its monetary value based on a body of work from that artist that is also and arguably manufactured monetary value. And I see the same thing happening with NFTs, uh, where yes. you know a collection might be selling really well for NFTs, and then somebody decides to buy in because they see this appropriated value. But actually, behind the scenes, a lot of that stuff is actually being purchased by the owner of the artwork using different accounts and funneling the money back in towards themselves uh, in order to create an artificial view that these things are selling for a high value in order to elicit the sale from an outside party to partake within that. And then they have their money as well. And I'm not saying that, that that's always happening. But I'm saying that it's a part of the game. And if you're willing to play this game, know that there are people trying to to, to do it in some fairly nefarious ways because it's un, entirely unregulated. Um, uh, yeah, and yes, there and, are certain and countries let's, let's and add, securities you, that You are, started this show. Let's add this. You started this show by talking about your, your flag, your Canadian maple leaf flag, and how <clears throat> uh, infringements – you make money off of that. That's another big area right now is people are just grabbing images and creating NFTs out of other people's images. I'm Again, I'm not saying it's rampant, but it is happening. This it, really it is, now, is the This is what I wanted to get to, you're, Steve. Yeah. Um, uh, you're, you're kind of stealing my thunder a little bit because that was the next point that I was going to make, but we, we might as well make it now because um, – what if I upload an image, uh, my own image, sure, uh, to OpenSea, and uh, and somebody decides to buy it? Great, they own that NFT, but they don't own the copyright to it unless I, through a legal process and a contract, assign the copyright to somebody else. Just because they buy the NFT, something does not mean that they own the copyright to it. Further to that point, if somebody steals my image and uploads it to any uh, NFT platform, well, um, that's 
it's not quite the same as stolen goods because it's, you know, it's not you're in possession of stolen property by those same laws. It's still copyright infringement. Uh, You have an illegal copy of something. But I can easily send a takedown notice, a DMCA takedown notice to OpenSea, and they legally have to respond and remove it. And it doesn't matter how much you paid for it. It is now gone. Um, because you did not own the copyright to it and the traditional laws of the land, they still come into play. And, and there's nothing that's going to change that, at least not in the short term. So yeah. this is this is the land that we live in where NFTs, uh, I put in the same ballpark as buying a plot of land on the moon. So long as that database is respected when it comes time to colonize the moon, sure, uh, then you you made a good choice. But the chances of that happening, especially because this is predominantly, as I said from the beginning, uh, Ethereum, there's Bitcoin. People aren't using Bitcoin, I guess, because it costs too much. And maybe that's a red flag right there. Um, And there are hundreds of other cryptocurrencies out there. Um, I'm not not saying bad things about cryptocurrency. There's a lot of bad things that I could say about it in terms of environmental impact and so on. Um, And there could be benefits in terms of uh, redefining the world monetary system. But it is not a thing I think that should be redefining copyright and ownership of artwork. I think that is something that should be disassociated from the blockchain, at least until it becomes an integral authority within our lives, such like the copyright acts that we are currently dependent on. And until such time as it replaces that, then I am not going to be investing a lot of time and effort into the NFT space, at least the way it is currently associated, partly in this blockchain that is decentralized, but intrinsically linked to this third-party proprietary platform that is owned by somebody that can go bankrupt or they can change the rules on anything and you lose everything. And you just stole my thunder because the other thing I was going to say was the the whole thing is the decentralization, the democratization of transfer, the speed of transfer. I mean, if I do a bank transfer between LA and London, they'll tell you it should post within three days. This is instantaneous. Okay, that's great. But it, but the decentralization stops at a certain point because there are specific entities that you must deal through that have control. So again, if, if a particular platform delists an item that somebody owns a point or two, you've got an issue there, which of course, brings us back to the AP thing. I agree with what you said at the start of this story. To me, this A devalues AP, Associated Press. I think just as importantly, it devalues and and um, brings down the 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 mental, you know, visual uh, prowess of the photographers and artists themselves. I don't know what percentage those photographers are getting from this. I'm not clear on that. What is AP taking? What is the artist actually getting? And they, and by the way, they haven't even said prices yet. So they're going to take their historical, some Pulitzer prize winning images, photojournalistic stuff, including metadata. It's going to include the date, the time, the location, the equipment, the technical settings. That's all part of what's going to be in these NFTs. What's the division of the money? We don't know yet. And I think to discuss this, that is a critical piece. I I believe you're right. But um, uh, there's also the element of 
Um, are the artists going to get paid in money? Are they going to get paid in cryptocurrency? Is the support uh, of um, of this particular blockchain? And it, I don't think it even says, it says uh, by a blockchain provider called Xua. Um, blockchain provider, meaning that that right. might be a different cryptocurrency outside of what we currently are familiar with. Um, well, they're actually they say- minted on Polygon. Uh, the blockchain is Polygon, which is a layer two solution to Ethereum. The idea behind it is it's faster and has lower gas fees. But <sighs> and, and again, I don't know Polygon and I don't know Zua. Uh, and and this is built on Ethereum, sure. And what what if Ethereum disappears? Uh, and what if all of these frameworks built onto Ethereum happen to crumble over time or change? You know, something gets forked in one way or another into a different beast, and and then you've got all this baggage that is just cut loose. Um, so something is going to get forked. <laughs> let's just say. Oh boy! Yes. Uh, to put it politely, the the. <laughs> I, I think that the Associated Press, I, I hate to use the phrase, stay in your own lane, because that is so terribly misused in so many different ways, and it's meant as an insult to so many different people. But the uh, the Associated Press, I still consider a semi-prestigious organization. Yes, they've had faults in the past, um, but if I'm looking to a, uh, a news article or photojournalistic integrity of images and I see the Associated Press's name on it, it does carry weight. Uh, I agree. And, and I don't and think so- it's an insult to say, to say stay in your lane. I think in this particular scenario, you're giving them sound business advice. Except that they'll probably make money off of this. Uh, well, see, that's the issue too, right? Because where's the money in Short journalism term. these days? Short term. W- yes, what's it going to do long term and- to Associated Press as an entity and and, and uh, credibility? I don't know. Who knows? Maybe just like Kodak, uh, they'll have an Associated Press logo slapped on a Bitcoin mining machine in a few years. Uh, oh you God. don't know how far this will slide, but... <laughs> I, I think to myself, okay, um, NFTs, uh, the, the usefulness right now, uh, th- there are many. But to an individual artist, I, I honestly think we should spend more time creating artwork and building up traditional business models rather than putting all of our eggs in the speculative basket um, that a few will succeed with. Um, but those people that do succeed, you can't look at their stories and use that as a model for your own success because there is an inherent and extreme survivorship bias. And if you're unfamiliar with the term survivorship bias, go look it up because it is a very real thing that um, you know is, is the cause of all of these wacky diets and, and all sorts of schemes that one person comes up with this crazy idea that tends to work for them but doesn't work for anybody else, but they become a huge success and everybody models their life after them. But the only reason why they were a success was akin to winning the lottery. Uh, and... And so that survivorship bias uh, for a lot of people in the art world is something that I have learned to avoid uh, just in in the building of my own career and finding my own audience. So keep that in mind. Associated Press, I don't even want to say good luck with this. Uh, I kind of wish in a way that this falters and fizzles out before it gets started uh, in such a way that they decide to just 
kind of hide this and not come back and revisit this idea for the time being. You know, if we have, you know, a, a country that respects uh, cryptocurrency as a legitimate uh, a monetary tool, you know, outside of El Salvador, I can't think of any country that currently does that. Uh, Where it didn't and, go well, by the way. Which, yes. Uh, and so maybe that is, uh, maybe, maybe that's an omen for, for all of us to look at and say, yeah, maybe, maybe we're not ready for this yet. Um until we are solidified, uh, and this really has a meaningful impact on everybody's lives, um, I'm leaving my art out of it. And I should say that I did put one uh, uh, one piece of artwork on OpenSea, uh, my The Snowflake um, a poster print that has, you know, a lot of work went into it. It's one of the most unique pieces based on the amount of time put into it that I've ever created. It's still up there. Just as a, you know, I uh, Steve's got a copy of it on his wall. I think the tangible copy, the uh, the physical edition that Steve has is far more valuable than an NFT version that you would not own the copyright if you decided to buy. Um, but it's there uh, just because I, I, I don't like talking about stuff unless I've at least tried it, uh, experienced it in some way to have a valuable opinion over the platforms and how things operate. And now, now you all know my opinion. Okay. Um, the next story, I also have opinions are gonna on. going to start coming. I just know it. Yeah. Hey, uh, let them come. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, if it, if I, I will set an email filter for the word NFT, and it'll just go into a special folder called NFTs. And if I've had a couple of whiskeys, I might look at that folder. But otherwise, it will not get my attention whatsoever. <laughs> Feel free Agreed. to send a bottle of whiskey uh, if you wish for me to have a conversation about NFTs. Yep. All right. <laughs> the next story, uh, also reported from DP Review, hands-on with the K-Lens, a light field lens that captures 3D data for post-capture refocusing. Now, that sounds like a been there, done that type of a uh, title. You know, when you think about what Lytro had done in the past with their light field cameras and other companies as well, until you get a look at this lens and the fact that it's a lens. It attaches to a camera, and the camera is nothing special. It's the camera you already own, yep. uh, which is one of the big downsides that I you know, encountered with the light field technology to begin with. The cameras sucked. I mean, to put it succinctly, they were not great image capture devices, uh, and the technology was all bundled together, and you couldn't decouple the two, um, but now you can. Uh and so there's some hands-on experience here from DP Review, and this is a project, and one of the reasons why I want to bring this up now is it's currently being funded on Kickstarter. There's a little under two weeks left. They have passed their funding goal, so uh, it looks like this will be a reality. And They've been showing prototypes uh, for quite some time at various conferences, and the technology looks very interesting, very sound, but also very niche and obscure, and I am really excited about this, even though I'm not 100% sure what I am personally going to do with it. But I'll tell you right away, I backed the Kickstarter campaign, because some oddity of a lens like this, I really want to have my hands on. But before I opine further, um, I would like to know what Steve's opinions are. Steve, what, what say you about this, this lens technology and what it could possibly be used for? So when I when I first saw this article, 
And I thought it was going to be one of those like product introduction articles that you see sometimes on DP Review or wherever. And, and it would be short and say, hey, this company's announced this. Ooh, looks cool. No, Damien DeMolder, credit to you. This is a, a pre-release copy. Went out and shot this thing. And yeah. it's a long, detailed write-up. And I love it. So let's start here. It's called the K lens because effectively what happens when you look through the viewfinder is it's almost like looking at a kaleidoscope, henceforth yep. K lens. It will work on existing still interchangeable lens cameras or video cameras. And arguably to me, it's the video where this could get really, really, really super cool. Here's what it's doing. It has, it has three sections. Section one. At the of, far of the end. lens itself, the three of, uh, of the lens, lens itself, yeah. right? Not the article. Yeah. So section one, the far out where you would put a lens hood, as it were, that's the actual optics. It's an 80 millimeter lens. That's the optics. In the middle is the mirror tunnel, also known as an image multiplier. I'll get into that in a second. And then in the rear end, it's basically a section that assembles everything together and puts it on the sensor. And as light, we'll get into details in a minute, but as light passes through this, it is divided up into nine different views, nine different images in a three by three grid. And those nine images, the best I can understand it, the way they describe it, as it goes through that tunnel section, the mirror tunnel, the mirror breaks the light and sees the image in front of you eight different ways. And light also passes straight through the lens, which would be the ninth. That's the way that it sounded that they made it in the article. So it's actually eight angles from the mirrors plus light does go straight through and you end up on your sensor, whatever. Let's use a number that makes no sense. If you had a 90 megapixel sensor, each image would be 10 megapixels. And they say somewhere in the, I'm not sure if it's in this article, if I was reading on other uh, material, but that the resolving power is somewhere around uh, just under 50 megapixels. That's actually of, an up, of the lens. It's not an up res, but what it does is it, it their software, which is called CDeep, their software takes the nine images, creates one image out of it that is actually slightly up resed to about 50% of your sensor. But what the image does with those other eight angles is it creates a depth map. Now, on your, on your iPhone, Don, have you ever used one of the apps when you just shoot a portrait mode on your iPhone? You get a depth map. And a depth map is effectively a grayscale image that shows depth. White is close to you. Black is the furthest away. And varying shades of gray in between are somewhere in between. It, in fact, and the better the depth map can be, Steve, the, the better that map can be, the more accurately you can defocus the background, that you can apply effects to certain parts of the image. You based can use on it as a mask away. in post-processing. Exactly. But the way the iPhone works is with uh, one lens, or maybe the extra lenses are supportive. There's the LiDAR information that can also play into that in order to enhance it. Um, but have you but ever pulled up the depth map from a portrait? I show? have. And uh, and, you know, the depth maps get better now than they used to be um, because there's more information that goes into them, more computational AI. There are still some gaps. You know, like if, if I were to um, take a photo of, of my daughter on a swing and the swing is made of chain, 
inside the chain links. The depth map never picks up the inside the chain link area properly. I'll give you an easier def- one. Bald people. It never gets the edge of my head. <laughs> if I photograph, and I'm being serious, and if I photograph a bottle of whiskey with a, a Glencairn glass full of whiskey, never gets the edge of the glass. It's not perfect, but now they've brought that, and this is why I think it's good for video. Now, iPhone iOS 15 has cinematic mode for video, which is effectively a depth map for video that can be refocused in post. And that's key because you're taking 30 frames a second and you're running a depth map on all of those frames. This for video on, uh, you you throw this thing, let's say on your Panasonic and record video with it. This could be huge. Well, it, and it, but it's not just a depth map because you have inherently different perspectives that with the parallax effect, you can create a very good and very accurate depth map. And there is precedent to this technology, by the way. Um, Samsung, if people remember, used to be in the camera business. Um, they had the NEX line, uh, was it uh, NX line, uh, NEX is Sony, the, the NX line of cameras. And uh, they had a couple of lenses uh, for their camera bodies that had a 2D, 3D switch on the lens barrel itself. So it would be a 2D lens. But if you move that switch to 3D, mirror things would flip into place and would split the image into a stereoscopic 3D image pair. And it worked reasonably well. However, not a lot of people were necessarily into that space for a consumer-facing product. Um, And so I'm sure they didn't sell very many, sort of like Panasonic's floundering with the 12.5 millimeter f12 3D lens for micro four thirds. That was an experiment that never really took off. Other people have been playing in this space, but on a professional level, when you're trying to do um, VR or augmented reality, uh, or as you mentioned, video, it's not just that you have a depth map because each one of these nine images does have a different perspective. So you can see behind somebody. Uh, A depth map doesn't provide you that information. But here, because you have those different angles of view, you can fill in the area. If you've ever seen like a a pseudo 3D image on Facebook, if that's still a thing, that was kind of a gimmicky thing where you could move your mouse around and it would show it in 3D. But it was guessing as to what would be behind the foremost object when you move things around and kind of filling things in with a a content-aware fill type of uh, uh, algorithm. And it wasn't great, but you wouldn't have to do that if you actually had the data in behind, which can create a much more immersive experience if you have, and to me, this is key, if you have a display technology that can take advantage of that. And that, I think, is also a burgeoning technology. Uh, You've got Looking Glass, which is a company that makes uh, pseudo-holographic, you know, no glasses required 3D displays, but you can look at it from different angles and see it truly uh, from different perspectives. And uh, there's a number of companies, I mean, famously, Red had the hydrogen uh, phone that I used for a while, and that was kind of neat. There is the Loom Pad from Leia, the same company making that technology. And the consumption of this 3D or holographic type of content is very small. But if that grows, man, I want to be on the wave of that growth. And, you know, if I were to, uh, to, to bet on something, um, I would have far more fun betting on this technology than betting on NFTs. 
because uh, I, I would just enjoy oh, the unusual content creation. And if it doesn't end up being a success, I would still be tickled because I would have loved creating the content and sorting out like the one or two displays on the planet that could display it properly. And just for my own self-enjoyment, love the content that I create. And as a photographer, I want to do more of that. And so if I have this grid of nine images, then that would be wonderful. However, nine images does not make a useful tool in any context, right? You have to have software that properly right. interprets this information into a format that can be displayed and used by other technologies and other hardware. So it's not just a hardware company. And this is where I get a little bit apprehensive is because if the company creates this device and it works perfectly as it should, uh, and then they go bankrupt uh, or they get bought out by another company that discontinues the product line and really doesn't care about this Kickstarter product in the future and the software goes away, especially in, in some cases, the software from these companies is cloud-based and they do the processing on the cloud. Well, if their servers go away, then I can't properly process the data unless some third party then comes in well, and, and the chances of that are minimal. And, and in some cases, it's simple. I mean, let's, let's pretend that this was developed 10 years ago and the software was 32-bit and the company went out of business. You can only use that software until your computer goes to a point where it says, oh, I'm sorry, I don't accept 32-bit software anymore. I need 64-bit software. There's a lot of reasons software dies. But what here's what struck me about this. First of all, if the software is bad, this is a huge waste of money. Okay. But there are some things that they put into this that seem somewhat radically smart to me. First of all, the 80 millimeter lens is designed by Zeiss. This isn't cheap glass. This is good glass, right? But in theory, so the way this started was they wanted to make the mirror section and the back section, the mirror tunnel and the back section independent and have a mount on the front of the mirrors where you could put any lens in front of those mirrors. The problem they found was it introduced dust. When it introduced dust, it caused huge problems with the mirrors. But in theory, you could change the 80 millimeter to a different focal length. You could put a zoom lens on there. If they could, you know, compensate for those other issues that they're that they're having. Possibly, possibly. There's in, in, further again, issues with that. Theory, um, in theory, right? Because you'd have because other, I, I, yeah, I like want to talk other about that theory. Issues. Because there's a company out of Iceland called Kula that makes a first surface mirror attachment that goes in the front of your lens. You could put it on any uh, DSLR lens, and uh, they even make one for smartphones, I think, too, that uh, will split the image into two. Uh, But it only works within a specific range of focal length based on the angles of the mirrors. Uh, and, And so, you know... 50 to 70 millimeters, maybe 80, that's going to be a sweet spot. But you can't put a 24 millimeter lens on it because the the mirrors won't be compatible with that focal length. So the point that I'm trying to make is, in theory, yes, but the mirrors in their configuration probably only have a certain tolerance. And that tolerance is not just for focal length, but also... The usefulness uh, can depend on the close focusing distance as well, because when you get closer and closer to a subject, you know, talking macro photography here, um, the parallax between the nine images will be increased. 
And when that parallax increases, that, that, that'll actually give you a more pronounced 3D effect, which is pretty cool. Um, but it also means that you will have less alignment in, you know, in 3D, you would call it the stereo window. Uh, but in this case, we've got nine images, but the window for which everything overlaps, that is the useful amount of information will become smaller, the more parallax you have. And so if you drill down into the ways that this could be used in different contexts, yes, it can do macro work. And they, I was actually talking to them via a chain of emails, and they will have a calibration profile, possibly for even using close-up filters on the front of this lens. Um, and a good achromatic close-up filter can get you into some really fun, uh, you know, uh, fun stuff here. And they plan on making that work. I don't know if it will be if, as effective, because with a lot of this technology, if it's not being used as specified by the design documents, you're probably going to start breaking things. Well, but, but the other thing I started by saying, they did some things here I think are super smart. And one of them is they almost ignore aperture completely. All they have is a grid with a particular marker where it's closed 75%, which they find to be the sweet spot. And that's all they care that you know about. Put it here is going to be your best results because the way it's working, grabbing so much depth of field anyway, it doesn't really matter. You're not going to use aperture for depth of field. And in fact, they say just raise your ISO is, is better off. One thing I, I envisioned when I saw this, somebody saying to me, well, I don't need something like that because Photoshop and Lightroom both have select subject now. So I can get a mask of my subject and I, I want to be very clear select subject is a mask black and white. This is a varied depth, depth map. There are black, white, and shades of gray in between. So that if you were to select a subject using this depth map and apply a blur to a bird in the middle of the wilderness, it would graduate the, or change the white balance, whatever you need to do. It would graduate that effect based on all those shades of gray. One problem I see is it's going to freak people out looking through a viewfinder, seeing nine images. They do make a K lens monitor, costs extra money, runs off the side, lets it compiles it into one image. Oh, or you know what it, it might be doing, and I'm not sure because if it's it doing might take it in the real straight time, shot through the middle, I think it might be just cropping in on the middle shot. I think that That's makes a lot more sense. Doing. Uh, and, and, and for the purposes of what it needs to do, that's all it needs to do, uh, in, in, in that, uh, in that degree. Uh, the price. <laughs> well, okay. Um, so I, I'm everybody no sit down. <laughs> so I, I'm no stranger to, uh, expensive equipment, you know, for specific purposes. And the more niche you get, typically the more expensive it's going to be. So this lens will be retailing for $4,200, um, as uh, as its you know final out the door price, but if you get in on the Kickstarter campaign, now I haven't seen exactly if there's uh, early birds left. Uh, I've uh, yeah, there there are uh, quite a few actually. Uh, so it's listed as uh, two thousand euro to get in at the um, uh, at, at the early bird price compared to thirty six hundred euro uh, as the retail price. So a significant decrease. Uh, in $1,890 discount. Yeah. Uh, which is huge. I mean, you are, if you're buying into something like this now, you are really supporting the development of the product. And it's not just a company that, 
uh, already has something sitting in warehouses and they're using the Kickstarter campaign as a marketing maneuver. Um, if they don't get enough interest on a, on a low level here just to get them made, they're not going to be made. Uh, and so I feel like they just need enough people to have these in the hands of, uh, you know, creative studios or uh, just weird photographers like myself um, that can create interesting content, share that with the world to generate buzz once things are out the door. And then it becomes, um, I guess, a safer investment. Once, uh, you know, if, if you wanted to drop the full retail price on something, you can see what it does and what people are actively doing with it. Right now, it's still speculative. And so that's why I like the discount that they have on the price. But I, I love conceptually, again, in theory, really cool thing. Would love to play with it. Don't know that I'll spend 4200 bucks. Uh, well, I'll, I'll get one, Steve, and you can come and visit me and you can play with it all you'd like. Um, uh, it's, I should mention too, that it's made for traditional camera mounts, the, the Nikon F mount and Canon EF mount, uh, possibly others. I can't remember if there's like a Pentax mount or something in there, but flapping mirror mounts, um, well, for but, which they can even be in the first picture in the, in the blog post, uh, in the article, it shows it on a Nikon Z series with an adapter. So. Yeah, uh, and so I would get the EF mount version and then adapt that to my uh, to my Lumix uh, L mount. Um, okay, so on to the next story. Talking about those mount adapters uh, is is useful, and I'm actually a, a little envious of Canon because when they made the transition from the EF to the RF mount, they themselves rolled out an adapter that had a filter that you could put in the the adapter, and that it could be so useful especially if you have a variety of different uh, you know, lens sizes with different filter threads on the, on the outside. I, I do, and I juggle the thread adapters and so on, but it would be much more convenient if you could put that filter uh, in between the lens and the camera body. And some telephoto lenses that have uh, front elements that are too big to, to hold filters, they've been doing this for years. Uh, it's just built into the lens design itself. Um, it has other but, advantages too, other than just size the filter becomes smaller and therefore cheaper. Uh, yes. And, uh, and less likely to get, you know, full of dirt and grime and, and things right. like that. If you have an expensive polarizing filter or what have you, uh, you know, put, uh, put that sort of behind the scenes uh, so that it, uh, it stays nice and pristine. But um, Benro is a company that, uh, you know, they've been making camera accessories for well before I was born, I think. Um, but um, they have unre uh, unveiled the uh, Aureole, the first detachable multi-lens filter or multi-filter lens adapter. And um, this kind of uh, builds on what Canon had introduced by, you know, obviously a third party. Interestingly, uh, from what I can tell, only for Canon as well at this point. No, no, no. Canon, EF, it, there's two of them. Canon, Canon EF to RF and Canon EF to Sony E-mount. Uh, I, I mean to say that only for Canon lenses. Uh, yeah, oh, lenses. yes, yes, yes. Yes. Gotcha. Um, so uh, from that perspective, uh, you've got your Canon EF glass, of which I do have a lot. I wish they came out with an L-mount version of this. I would be very, uh, very happy. Uh, yeah, uh, EF to RF and EF to E-mount is what we're looking at here. It's interesting because it allows for the use of circular filters uh, for whatever you'd want it. Yeah, just a regular filter, a polarizing filter. You don't necessarily need to spin it around, but you can. 
uh, as well as square filters. If you wanted to have a uh, graduated ND filter or whatever you want to use a square filter for, and you could use them both at the same time. You could put two one filters in each slot. into this. One in each slot. Now, how many people use multiple filters simultaneously that this that have been clamoring for this to be a thing? I don't know of that many, but it's nice to have that particular feature here. The problem that I find with this design, Steve, and you might agree, I'd, I'd love to know your thoughts on this, is it looks so proprietary with these filters. They're not a standard filter that you load in here. It's got uh, special grooves on the outside for threading it. And the same thing for the frame on the square filter. It's got a special design um, with, uh, you know, the, the gearing that is, um, you know, in, in a done in a very specific way that can be so easily patented. And I am certain that if Benro is coming out with a product like this, that they have got at least a dozen patents behind the scenes protecting their uh, uh, their investment, uh, their research and development and uh, and manufacturing of this. And that's a problem for me because I don't know Benro as a filter manufacturer. Now they they have no pedigree in in my uh, in my mind for making filters, and if I have to depend on them for all of the filters rather than the companies that I already know and love like breakthrough photography or B plus W um, then uh, yeah, okay. They, they need to prove themselves on multiple fronts here. Um, but as soon as you start going proprietary, it reminds me of all the strange memory formats that Sony created over the years. And because they were proprietary, nobody else bought into the mini disc or the memory stick um, or any of those uh, crazy ideas because it was patent encumbered and too difficult for anybody else to embrace. What say you? Well, the, the, the Canon one comes with ND filter or variable ND, something to that effect. You know, Canon, like you say, I think when Canon came out with adapters, when they went with the RF mount, they did it, they did it really smart because they have a straight adapter EF to RF. They have a straight adapter EF to RF with a control ring and they have an EF to RF with the filter. That's really, really smart. The only way, though, that I see me, I mean, I, I suppose somebody could try using maybe gradients at different angles for effects. There are effects filters people could do. So maybe somebody wants to use, a, a, you know, some kind of an effect filter and, and stack those. I don't know. It, it is interesting to me that this thing has a an Arca Swiss mount on the bottom of it. So that if you're mounting it with a 24 to 70, you could put it on a tripod. But so if you do it with a 70 to 200, you're going to end up with two tripod. I, I don't know. Seems a little bit weird to me. Um, <laughs> a, a lot of mount adapters. Is, this is not the first one that has that, that, that mount. And thankfully, it looks removable if you wanted to just take a little Allen key and take that off. The, the price point, not bad compared to the Canon one. It's 249 180 right now on sale for a limited time. Don't know how long. But I couldn't find a release date. Did you? No. And I actually signed up because uh, if you click on uh, the, the link in the article from Petapixel here, um, the website is very nondescript. And it just basically says, put your email address in. And I did. And it sent me uh, another, uh, just, just an email with not a whole lot of extra information, um, but wanting me to buy into it right now with more information to come. Uh, and that's it. So there's something um, inside me. There's hmm. something inside me as I read the article. This felt like CES. 
this felt like one of those things that they're floating it and they're getting email addresses, but may never see the light of day. There's no mention of yeah. what fil- they mention a gradient. They mention a polarizer. There's no mention of filter prices, any of that yet. So I don't know. It could be vaporware, but it, it's an we'll see. They they would need to, uh, in my opinion, they, they'd need to partner with uh, a filter manufacturer that people know and that trust the name of in order for this. Or to work. if you look at that picture. That looks like a standard screw-on round filter almost that slid in there. So maybe it just takes, you could use a B plus W. It's just a small round filter. I don't know. Yeah. And maybe you just take your existing filter and you have this um, this extra thread that you put it into that has all the gearing around it. That would make a lot more sense. Could be. Um, but we don't have those details because uh, we're trying to grasp at thin air here to find something tangible because there's not a whole lot meat on these bones uh, in terms of this press release. It still looks cool. Um, and the fact that these are allowing you to do more than EF to RF, right? So if you're a Sony user, this is going to be useful for you. Um, I want this for any, any mirrored camera lens mount to mirrorless lens mount. There's no reason why you can't stick a filter in there. There is space in between. Um, I I just, I, I wish it was an option everywhere from every manufacturer, you know, uh, KNF concept, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, photodiox, any of these other manufacturers that are making these adapters, just come up with something cool like this. And I'll spend the extra money for the extra functionality, especially if I've got a universal set of filters that I don't have to start worrying about swapping around on the front of lenses with, uh, you know, a wallet full of filter thread, uh, upsize and downsize, uh, adapters, which is cumbersome at best. So cool. Yeah, I Thank you, Ben Rowe, I guess. Mostly okay. known for uh, monopods and tripods, by the way, my, my monopod is a Ben Rowe, So yeah, I, I think I've got a ball head from them, um, somewhere in my kit. Um, Next story, final story for the day, uh, for the week. A new optical fabrication method uses liquid polymer for cheaper custom lenses, uh, faster and cheaper custom lenses. And you know, this is one of those things that uh, as technology constantly evolves, uh, we find better ways to rapid prototype. Um, and especially when, when rapid prototyping involves more complex optics that has all sorts of bends and curves that's difficult to manufacture traditionally, um, it becomes very expensive to prototype something that requires that because you effectively have to build a machine to make the lens, and that's a huge expense. And once that machine is built, you can make 10 of them, you can make 100 of them. And yes, it'll take time, but the, the construction of the, uh, the manufacturing equipment is the hardest part. If you could rapid prototype, even if it's not perfect, you know, even if the optical quality isn't exactly what you want it to be, but you can see exactly how the pieces fit together and see the use cases um, in practicality, then you might have some uh, some uses here. So I looked at this with an open mind and hope. And the more I read, the more jaded I got. Um, because Really? Yeah, because this, this, this technology here, uh, re- researchers at uh, uh, Technion, uh, Israeli Institute of Technology, they developed a faster, cheaper method to produce customized optical components for applications including corrective lenses, augmented and virtual reality, autonomous vehicles, medical imaging, and astronomy. Uh, and they've got a lot of those kind of sound like more industrial, not necessarily consumer-facing products. Um, but when I saw what they did, 
they basically took um, uh, a liquid solution for which the um, uh, the polymer that they make the lens out of uh, is neutrally buoyant in. And they put it in a frame so that they could just kind of have it surrounded by liquid and just kind of suspended within that frame. They, then they, they, aimed, they put the frame down in, in the base liquid, basically. In the base liquid, yeah. Uh, and then they sh- uh, shined ultraviolet lights on it to cure the liquid. And then they took it out. And I thought, okay, um, how, how is that different than resin-based 3D printers right now uh, that use ultraviolet light to cure uh, a liquid resin uh, in whatever shape you want. Yeah, and except it would be slower. A, a 3D printer is much slower than what I saw in that video. And to be clear, there's two liquids involved. It's a liquid polymer is what they're making the the optic out of. And they have a ring. Think of it almost like a you know somebody's glasses, the frame of somebody's glasses. It's just a singular ring. They submerse that in a secondary liquid inject the liquid polymer and then use the UV light to basically cure the liquid polymer. Here, right, but the, I, the, 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 hold on, because they're just okay. molding it, right? But they're molding it freeform. It's open on the top and the bottom from what we could see in this particular video. In, My guess in this is that after it's it. done, they do more work to it. There's post work after that they didn't show us because they can make... Okay, so let's start here. They were inspired. The thing that inspired this project was the number of people worldwide that needed corrective lenses but lived places they couldn't get them. Well, that would indicate that they're making different magnifications. And we didn't see that here. Well, they've got to make different magnifications in a way different than what I saw. Every lens they make is going to come out the same with that. Yeah. So they are grinding or sanding something after the fact. They are. Um, However, at the very bottom of the article, there's a photo of somebody holding up a very large diameter lens. Um, And do do you know it? uh, Notice anything about that particular uh, optic? Hold on. I'm going. Uh, That looks like we talked about this type of lens. It looks like a Fresnel lens. Uh, I mean, partly because it's uh, so large. size. But in, in terms of optical quality... It's milky and low contrast. Well, okay. In their and, defense, and the thing about- in, in their defense, it could be. I am totally going to bury myself here. It could be because they just took that out of the liquid and they haven't polished it yet. I don't know. I'm trying no, to save them. No, it, it, it's it's clear in terms of optical transmission. It just, uh, you know, the, the idea w- with these optics too, and this is, this is also true of any, uh, at least by the traditional formulas. And this is evolving technology and they might be using something different. But if you have a resin or polymer that cured under an ultraviolet light source changes its state, to become solid. Um, Further exposure to ultraviolet light will often cause it to turn yellow over time. Um, And this is true of 3D printing in resin. They often say avoid exposure to ultraviolet light because, you know, your your model will turn yellow. Um, And so having yellow glasses or optics in a VR headset or uh, in a car that might be on the road for a decade, uh, all of the lenses turning yellow over time, I think that there's a longevity problem okay, with this but, technology. But you're too. assigning you're assigning uh, current known issues 
with something somebody has just developed that may not exist. For all we know, they've either compensated for that or it's the polymer that they're using doesn't have that issue. I don't know either way. Here's my thing. And here's the reason I'm excited about this. As I saw it, I didn't lose interest as it were. This can be done with basic stuff in almost any lab. And I do think if it can be made that fast and made that cheap, and in a third world area, you can provide corrective lenses for people, even if after a year they turn yellow and they throw them away and you do it again. Um, I just think that there's a huge amount of possibilities here. There is, uh, especially when it can be done cheap and for the masses. Um, there's possibilities uh, within this t type of technology. Um, but that's not without its limitations. Um, and it, it seems like the, the fact that they're trying to pitch this uh, for autonomous vehicles and VR and medical imaging and astronomy. Um, corrective lenses for third world countries, yeah, Steve, I think that's a, a perfectly uh, you know, astute use for that. But for most of the other use cases um, that they are, are listing here, I, I don't see it being the, the proper solution unless it's temporary. Right. Unless it's uh, a, a brief thing, as I mentioned from the, the, the top, you know, rapid prototyping could possibly be a scenario where this is where this is useful to see if something genuinely works. Maybe get it in the hands of engineers to refine a concept, an idea, and then take that back to the drawing board, make changes uh, before you go through with a more complex manufacturing process. Um, I, I think that that could be a very useful tool. That's a that's a huge thing, actually, because if in reality you can. We don't know the cost, but if the cost is really low and you can prototype or make disposable optics quickly, inexpensively, and easily, it does open a lot of doors. But like everything like this, leaves to be seen. Yep. And uh, I, I guess, you know, the uh, Israel Institute of Technology is developing this tech and, and I hope that um, they find either a, a buyer or get a grant to explore this further in real world applications rather than just creating something in a laboratory. Because I hate to see this tech, you know, uh, be developed and then scientific papers written about it. And then the researchers move on to something else because there just isn't any interest outside of uh, the, you know, the journal that they wrote for and then you carry that on to, okay, well, um, wh uh, what else can we do, you know, designing optics for, uh, I don't know, uh, machine learning or metrology in manufacturing. And they forget this idea because nobody, uh, uh, nobody took a bite out of it kind of thing. So, yeah. Yep. There you go. Well, Steve, before we get into our picks of the week, um, I want to thank you for being on this first sort of return episode of Photo Geek Weekly. And uh, you have been, like, I, I've been off the air for a while, um, but you haven't. And uh, where can people find you, your podcast, and all of your musings online? Uh, I am all over the place, it feels like, right now. But first, we should just once again say, welcome back to Photo Geek Weekly. <laughs> um, Thank you. The, uh, I'm so glad that you're back, dude. I'm so glad that you're back. So I've just been doing a ton of stuff. The radio station has had tons of shifts that I've been doing there. So I've been busy doing that. Normally where you can find me, I'm at stevebrazel.com. It's like the country of Brazil, but two L's. It's at Steve Brazel on Twitter, at Steve Brazel on Instagram. The podcast is Behind the Shot, which is behindtheshot.tv for the website or at behindtheshot.tv on either Instagram 
or Twitter just released a new episode today with Sam Abel, uh, which is really a fascinating look at a photo. He's a, a 33-year um, Nat Geo photographer, Canon Explorer Light. It was a fantastic interview. I just really, really like the interview. And I've got our, I, th- I think you know David Bergman, but I got David Bergman I'm going to be recording with here soon. Um, and that's the probably the best way to find me. And of course, you and I do the critique shows once a month, usually uh, one of the first Thursdays of the month in between my normal episode releases. Those only go to YouTube, but the podcast itself is wherever you get your podcasts in audio only format. Or if your outlet supports video, you can get video there or over on the YouTube channel. All right. And uh, we've done a couple of those episodes while I've been here. Um, and uh, my audio has been improving as time has gone on. The first Actually, one I was... Sound, you sound really good, Rich. There's not a lot of echo today. The first one had some echo in it. Clearly, you've got more stuff in the room now. <laughs> um, but coming out of the holidays, I've I've literally been sitting down sometimes five minutes before we do stuff and felt hurried. So I'm hoping to get kind of back into the groove and 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 make those shows a little smoother. I felt like the last two, when we got started again after your move, I felt that like the last two were rough. So hopefully those will get smoother. Yeah, and and I haven't uh, truly felt settled in in quite a uh, quite. I mean, we, we came uh, late uh, uh, late October, end of October, uh, but there's so much. Um, bureaucracy that we have to cut through, uh, you know, just getting my permanent resident status, which I now have, thankfully. Um, but uh, even my wife uh, renewing her Bulgarian documents, changing her name, getting my daughter registered as a Bulgarian citizen and, and all of this uh, stuff and so many different places you've got to go through. It's just been crazy. Uh, and rather than take a break, um, we decided to start on a construction project. Because one of the things that we, we've always wanted, um, or at least I've always wanted, is uh, we're in a small village. Okay, We're about 20, 25 minutes away from the larger city of, uh, of Varna, Bulgaria, on the coast of the Black Sea. We're about 10 minutes drive to the coast from where we are. Um, but uh, we're in a small village of 135 permanent residents. Um, so quaint, small, um, but, uh, but really friendly people around. And we love it. And the proximity to the big city is very helpful too. But we love the home life. Uh, we're, we're currently looking after chickens. Uh, they're, they're my father-in-law's chickens uh, for the winter time. So we've got uh, a dozen chickens that my daughter loves to play with. But we're building uh, an outdoor kitchen in the back. And uh, we've got a contractor coming in uh, using reclaimed bricks and uh, building uh, two separate, uh, like a, a, a wood uh, stove, a stovetop with a wood-fired oven and a barbecue attached to that uh, in, with this beautiful pergola that's going to go on top. And it's just going to be this wonderful space for us to entertain, enjoy life in, uh, in the warmer months. I'm so looking forward to that. But rather than rest now, we figured let's just let's hammer through this, get that out of the way now so that come springtime, it is really that rest and relaxation that we are looking forward to. But in the short term, it means that we're, we might have some days coming up without power because they've got to redo a bunch of electrical stuff. And, uh, you know, the, the situation when they built this house, the, the, the breaker panel is um, I don't think it would make code in any country in the world. So uh, a lot of this stuff is being being redone right now. So if the next episode of this podcast does not come out a week from when this one airs, uh, understand that I might be in the dark. Uh, and that's just the way things are going to be for the next couple of weeks. So uh, hopefully I can keep up with, uh, with a regular schedule. But like you, Steve, uh, the hecticness over the past few months 
Um, I, I, for me, at least, it's going to continue for one more, but it will then quiet down and life will become a little bit more normal. But during that time, slowing down. Yeah, me too. Me too. And I like to slow down with a camera in my hand, right? And have nothing else in my day, uh, but to, uh, you know, pick up my camera and tinker with an idea. And so my pick, uh, of the week right now, uh, is, is a new lens from, uh, from Laowa. I was actually given a, a sample, a production sample of this lens, uh, just prior to, to, to my leaving. And I packed it in my luggage and I took it out when I got here, when I had some time to play with it. Um, it is a full frame, 85 millimeter macro lens that is absolutely tiny oh, wow. for, for a full frame lens. And uh, Steve's seeing me uh, hold it up here. But one of the reasons why it's tiny is because its maximum aperture is f5.6, which makes a lot of sense for a macro lens, uh, for a regular macro lens that focuses to infinity, uh, all the way up to two times magnification in this case. Higher magnification macro lenses like a 5x lens, you'd want to be shooting closer to f2.8 because your effective aperture is going to be much smaller. But for a regular range macro lens, um, I typically shoot between f8 and f16. Uh, I, I don't think that I'd ever really use F 2.8 or F four on a macro lens. Some people can, and you get a really nice ethereal soft look to certain images. And there are lenses out there for those people already. Uh, but for people like me that are never going to use that range, why not just forget about it, not build it into the design. And that lets you have a smaller, more compact, lighter lens for those that are listening. I, I don't know how to describe this. It's half the size of his palm. Yeah, yeah, it, it's a tiny, tiny lens. Um, but the, the thing is, it's designed also for mirrorless mounts. So you don't have the extra bulk on the back end uh, to you know, extend the, uh, the, the image circle to focus uh, with a, a, a flapping mirror in between. So that will save you a little bit of size as well. They make it for all the mirrorless platforms except the L mount, uh, but they make an, uh, an M mount version for the Leica uh, rangefinder cameras. Not that many people would use a lens like this um, on, on the M rangefinders, but I got an M to L mount adapter. So that works perfectly for me so that I can uh, adapt this to, to my cameras and use it just fine. At a price point of $450 for the Canon oh, RF and the, uh, uh, and, uh, the Nikon and Sony mounts, the Leica M comes in 50 bucks more uh, at $499. Uh, you know, I guess that's your Leica premium price. Yeah, but that, still uh, less than $500 sounds, sounds like a really good price point. Like if somebody wanted to get a, their first macro lens that was more than a one time, this one being two time, it sounds like if that's actually optics, a pretty good price to get started. Yes, if the optics are good. And I'm one that puts these things to the test. And uh, they are good. Uh, they are on par with the best 10% of macro lenses that I've uh, that I've tried. Uh, I'm not going to say it's the best, uh, but but it's it's definitely up there uh, in in optical quality. Uh, and of course, well, with most of Laowa's lenses, uh, they are manual focus, manual aperture. So uh, you know you have to embrace that manual focus when you're using something like this. But I manually focus for my macro work anywhere. Uh, that's so that's not I'm not losing anything in that particular process. 450 bucks for most of the versions of this lens. Um, and uh, I like it, especially because they decided to go out on a limb and say, all right, we don't need to promote this thing as being 
an f2.8 or f2 lens because the wider aperture is always a better lens and then it becomes bigger and bulkier and more expensive you don't need it for the majority of the work that you do and i intend on shooting an entire series of work i want to use this lens over the next month or two um, as one of the only lenses that i'm using just to continue to put it through its paces and say that yeah you know i, I have lenses well into the four digits of price um but that doesn't mean it's the right tool for the job. Uh, and creativity is far more than throwing dollars at a problem. And uh, yeah, uh, that's my pick of the week. Sounds good. My pick of the week is sitting in a box behind me. I have not unboxed it yet because uh -oh. I've been so busy <laughs> and it's driving me crazy because I've had it for almost a week. But I, I have over the years as an IT person by trade, I've set up a number of different NASAs, uh, for various reasons and a number network of synologies, right? Let's, let's yeah, not network just attached it. storage. So it's, it's basically a box of hard drives with a little bit of computer smarts in it. So it's got a network, uh, you know, port in it and you can plug it into your switch and it's got some sort of operating system on it, generally Linux based that lets it present itself as SMB shares or whatever the case might be so that you can find it with your computer. But <clears throat> I've always been a fan of Synology. I've set up a number of Synologies for others. In fact, just recently I was helping, uh, again, my buddy Adam L. Micaias set up a Synology. I was talking with David Bergman about his Synology that he's got. And I decided, you know, I I don't have to have one. I don't shoot as much as a lot of people like tour photographers, which both of them are. And they, you know, come back from a shooting entire tour and every show they're shooting the whole show. I'm not like that, but. There's a number of reasons I wanted a NAS. One, increased storage. Two, some of the other features that come with it. So I bought myself a Synology DS1621 Plus. It's a six-bay NAS. It has six hard drive bays in it. Actually has two NVMe memory slots for cache uh, that you can put in it, but you don't need to. And there's actually times you wouldn't want to put cache in. And I got it with six 14-terabyte Western Digital Red Plus drives. Key that I got the plus, by the way, the normal Western Digital Red drives are what's called SMR or shingled magnetic recording. They can be. Which, That's not to say that they they all are, but there's a possibility depends on the size. That they are. Most of them actually, most of the sizes people are buying are the, some of the larger sizes are not. But here's a key thing, by the way, even the ones that are, there is a standard what CMR conventional magnetic recording. There is a CMR cache on every one of those Western digital drives that is shingled. So for most people, you won't see the difference unless you overfill the buffer or stress the buffer. Right. But the plus drives are CMR and it's just, to me, it's a better bet for running a NAS. So I got that. It's effectively uh, 84 terabytes, except I'm going to run it where I've got two drive of parity in a, in a RAID scenario, which RAID takes six, two of yeah. those. It's actually RAID 6. I'm actually going to use the Synology Hybrid RAID, SHR, uh, but same as RAID 6 in the sense that you have two drives that can fail before you lose the, the RAID. That leaves me four drives of usable space, which is 56 terabytes of space. Um, and part of the reason I wanted it is Synology has just tons of apps that you can install. So Synology Drive is a fantastic feature that lets you sync between devices. You can even set it up to where it will sync 
um, almost like a Dropbox, your own little personal Dropbox. It's got the ability to sync across a WAN to different Synologies. It's got a Plex server. And they have their own cloud backup service as well now, too. Great cloud backup service. I'm going to install Plex. And the other thing I'm going to do is I've been wanting to install HomeBridge because I have a number of devices, my pool equipment, my ring cameras that don't work with HomeKit. And I want to be able to set them in routines through Siri. So HomeBridge will let me take those devices that might be Alexa or Google enabled and make them Siri HomeKit compatible. And I can install HomeKit on the, I was going to buy like a $50 Raspberry Pi so that HomeBridge was running 24 hours a day. I can install Docker on the Synology, install HomeBridge and have it running 24 hours a day. It'll be great. Right. And uh, I actually have two Synology NASs. My main one is a 12 bay variety. But uh, and, and I got you. that I got that shipped to me. That was very expensive to ship air freight in a wooden crate. Um, and if something went wrong with that, it just disappeared or it arrived broken. I didn't want to lose all of my data, so I had bought a smaller two bay uh, NAS, the uh, the seven twenty plus, and uh, loaded that up with eighteen terabyte drives, not because I necessarily trust them, but that was the biggest that I could buy. And uh, my main NAS has, has 12 terabyte drives in it. Um, but uh, my, my goal now, and uh, to, to your point of Synology, having a great support for apps and uh, a lot of backend stuff that can be automated and things, I will, take my, sm- I will take my smaller NAS. I haven't done this yet because there's just too many projects on the go, uh, but it's going to go into our guest house. Our, our house here has a separate house on the property um, for any guests that want to come to visit. And uh, there's nothing in that uh, house at the moment. We haven't furnished it except for a router. I put a, a, an Asus router on a mesh network uh, over there so that anytime we're in the back part of our yard, we still have Wi-Fi. And uh, that means that if I were to put my two-bay NAS over there and schedule backups from my main NAS for all of my edited works, all of my business documents, it, it won't be big enough to fit all of my raw files. And I understand that. Uh, but just to have an immediate technically off-site backup um, in another structure uh, is just an extra level of redundancy, even though my main array uh, has RAID 6 here as well. But wh- for, for the, the model that you've chosen, the DS1621+, Plus, a couple of key things that I like about this um, is, uh, number one, it, it's using a, a four-core 2.2 gigahertz processor, which is more than you need uh, for, for a NAS like this. You did yep. mention the fact that it has a, um, uh, a, a M.2 drive slot. It's got two of them in there. So you can yep. add an SSD cache if you want. And arguably for a lot of random access stuff, when you're accessing the same pool of data uh, repeatedly, um, then it can be huge to uh, to have that. Or like if if you're if you're uh, editing a video project that has a lot of files that you're constantly re-referencing, it if you're doing asynchronous reads and writes, it can help you. But if if mainly you're just copying files, it can actually you won't see the difference. But technically, if you time it, it can actually slow things down. Well, because it's going to have to start throwing things into the cache, assuming that you want right. to reaccess that. It's at got, a, it's at got a time to do dual future. writes you, effectively. Yeah. Um, it does have expandable memory, which I really like because I find that where the processors are often over-provisioned, the memory is under-provisioned, especially if you have a drive that fails and it has to start healing the array when you throw in a new, uh, a new drive. Memory is, is quite important to that. It comes with four gigabytes, but it has two memory slots. 
so that you can upgrade that all the way to 32 gigabytes, which I think is too yeah, much. You can leave the uh, four and just buy an eight or whatever you want for the second one. Or even just uh, another four, really nice. just d- double that to eight. And I think yeah, that's exactly. more than enough for what you would need. Uh, and um, this is... I mean, for me, it would be useful. Not everybody would care, but it has a um, a PCI Express expansion slot inside. Uh, what would you use that for? Well, uh, you would never hit 10 gigabits per second uh, of, of bandwidth on this. So you could put a 10 gigabit uh, Ethernet card in there. It'll probably fully maxed out, maybe push to two gigabits per second. Actually, it has 5. a slot for a 10 gigabit card. I don't yeah, think that's you what I mentioned. up the East... I don't think you eat the eSATA when you do that. The eSATA. Uh, no, no, can, I, you, I mentioned a PCI Express expansion, and I, oh, I didn't PCI say eSATA. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, but you don't need to get a 10 gigabit uh, Ethernet card because I think that would be overkill. They now make specifically for use cases like this 2.5 uh, gigabit Ethernet expansion slots, and they're fairly inexpensive. And you would take the advantage, especially more desktops or, you know, even a Wi-Fi 6, they're going to be at or above one gigabit per second bandwidth. You can take advantage of that by wiring in uh, that, uh, Here's what's that interesting, extra, though. extra speed. That, the 10 gigabit card is only like $139. And you can, for 200 bucks, two, 250 there, there is an entry-level Netgear that uh, little Netgear 16, I think it's 16 port switch that has two 10 gigabit ports on it. It's not a great switch. There's not a lot of processing power, not a lot of cash, but it would get you a little bit of a 10 gigabit backbone to it if you just wanted to start on it. But the other thing that's interesting about this one is it does have eSATA so that you can put an expansion unit on it and it has four gigabit ethernet ports so if you wanted to gang those together, you can do that as well. It does support link aggregation, yeah. Yep. And well, Synology has done that for, for quite a long time. And, and I love, like, even um, uh, w- when you fire it up, Steve, make sure that you get the latest um, uh, software update for the Synology DSM. One yep. just dropped a few days ago uh, in, Seven in dot this X, month. whatever. Uh, yeah. And, and usually when they do these minor updates, uh, always a line item in the change log is security updates. And that's one of the reasons why I love Synology is because they are very forward with, um, you know, if they have to push out an update for any reason, some little glitch here and there, if there's any lingering security issues somewhere, they'll fix that and push it out at the same time. Uh, Every update always has that. And it's not to say that, oh, well, you know, Western Digital's drives, uh, they don't put security updates out in every uh, patch. So they must already be secure. No, no, they are not. Um, there is no such thing as a perfectly secure device. And if a company is not pushing out security updates, you are likely more vulnerable than a company that is pushing out security updates with every patch. Uh, yeah. So yeah. The, one the, other thing that supports, by the way, is, yeah. is BTRFS which is a file system I that supports snapshotting and it supports self-healing. And the snapshotting feature is awesome, super customizable, uses almost no disk space in comparison to really snapshotting. Um, there's just a lot I really like about this thing. And now I just need to find time to actually <laughs> do it. I would not have recommended uh, BTRFS uh, three, four years ago. Uh, I wouldn't it- have recommended a hybrid RAID system either because they're proprietary. But Synology's so commodity now. I'm, I'm it is. comfortable with it. 
And that file system has matured. I mean, uh, they're, yes. they're, uh, it, you've got a choice basically between uh, ext4, uh, which uh, in the Linux space is basically the most common file system that you could use, and btrfs, which was in its infancy a while ago and, and is now getting uh, you know, much more mature. Mature enough that I, uh, I will give my data to it. So, um, yeah. there we have it. We've and got, these drives uh, are 7,200 RPM too. So I'm, I'm in, this is going to be a nice setup. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. And, and for your configuration with a, a six bay array, uh, the red plus drives, I think are all you'd need. If you're going eight or more drives, I would have sprung for the red pro just because they have the extra sensors in them to, you know, remove, uh, vibration and, and to kind of coalesce themselves to kind of work like a hive mind, uh, a little bit better when you have a massive number of them, but don't buy that if you don't need it. If you're getting uh, two to six bay NASes, the Red Plus is perfect for that. I am surprised that you went for uh, 14 terabyte drives uh, because the higher the capacity, traditionally, the... uh, the more likelihood of failure uh, based on the manufacturing technology. So why 14 and not 10 or 12? So as I spec'd it out, I wanted to make sure that I had a five-year run on the space that I was going to be getting. So I I based mainly off of space. And then uh, B&H had some package deals set up with uh, you know, 10s or 12s or 14s or 16s. And I rarely go with the largest. They tend to be more expensive too, by the way. So I'll usually on anything go like one step, maybe two steps below the the, the common largest. Uh, but a lot of it was, again, the, the space type issue. But then, and by the way, this was the, the unit itself, the package deal when you broke it down, the unit itself was the normal price you would buy it at. But the Red Plus drives were on a huge sale. And I found those drives at, I think, Newegg, uh, 20 or 30, I think $30 per drive cheaper than they were in this, you know, really huge discounted package price at B&H. And I'd already ordered it. And I called B&H because I ordered on a Saturday and they're closed for Sabbath. So I called on the Monday and said, look, I couldn't call you to get a price match. Will you price match this? They said, yeah. And they refunded me 180 bucks. That's wonderful. Yeah, B and H is pretty good about that. Um, oh yeah, it was I, I've had them. Uh, when I was buying the twelve terabyte drives for for my array, uh, I asked them for a custom quote uh, because they'll do that if you want to buy in bulk. Uh, they they will give you, and it wasn't huge. I think it was something like five percent off, but it was still five percent cheaper than anybody else. Uh, and yeah, I was I was buying. I think I bought ten of them at the time. There's two open bays still in the array. Um, but uh, especially when you're buying in bulk, and those are not cheap, uh, it was a nice little bit of savings. And uh, thank you to B&H for, for, for oh, yeah. providing that. Yeah, B&H, I like B&H. Uh, DVE store I like for, for you know leaning more towards the video side, still photography side, I tend to go to B&H. Or Adorama. Well, and, uh, I, had a bad, I had a bad experience once with Adorama, so I favor B&H. Uh, you know, sometimes Adorama will, uh, at least when I was in Canada, they would ship things to Canada that B&H wouldn't. Uh, just because of there's certain uh, trade embargoes from certain companies that they made a deal with B&H not to ship to Canada, but Adorama didn't have the same deals. So, uh, right. you know, I've, I've uh, gone to both. And by the way, uh, before we end this episode, if you would like a copy of my macro photography book and haven't gotten one already, if you'd like to support me in any way to that end, uh, both B&H and Adorama 
still have stock of the physical edition. Uh, I don't know how long their stock supplies are going to last. Uh, I don't have any way to resupply them once they're gone. But uh, if you wanted to pick up a copy of Macro Photography, The Universe at Our Feet, uh, it still has some retail presence, even though I cannot sell it directly because I don't have any books in my hands to sell right now. Um, so you can check out those wonderful retailers, not just for your Synology disk station needs, uh, but also my book, if you're there and uh, throwing stuff into your shopping cart already. All right, that uh, brings us to the end of another episode of Photo Geek Weekly. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, 163. Let's hope that that continues on for hundreds more episodes into the future. And Steve, I'm glad you were along for the ride. It's always great to have you in the co-pilot seat, as it were. Thank you so much for having me, my friend. It is wonderful to do this with again. Uh, do this with you again, and uh, welcome back. Thank you. And uh, and again, if anybody has any comments, feedback on this episode or any previous episodes, feel free to uh, you know get in touch. My contact information is not hard to find. I always look forward to hearing from the people that listen to this. And so with all of that said, another uh, you know wonderful set of stories, and hopefully that's inspired you to pick up your cameras. And now it's time to get out and shoot. Music.